I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 13. And we're going to kind of begin where we left off last week and then move forward in, in uh, the book of Job. We're going to try to walk briefly through a number of chapters uh, to emphasize one major theme that I'll explain in just a moment. But in Job chapter 13, last week we focused a lot of our attention on verse 15. Where Job, in the midst of all of this gloom, has this ray of hope in his heart. And he says in verse 15 that though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. So it's almost uh, inexplainable, but for the grace of God, that Job, who is clinging to his innocence, though accused by his friends of being guilty of some great sin that has brought the great calamity on his life, rejecting their counsel, clinging to his innocence, and yet under the weight of this incredible suffering and rejection that he has experienced, nevertheless, there wells up within his heart this hope in verse 15, that even if God slays me, even if he kills me, I'm going to hope and trust in him. And I will continue to argue my ways before him. Because I, my heart's desires to be vindicated, to be justified from all these false accusations, and to be restored. And I will continue to hope in God. God has been silent. God has not spoken to me. Everyone else is condemning me. But I'm still going to hope in God. And that's just a, an incredible grace that's growing in his heart. The questions that remain concerning this hope is how can it take place? How can Job be vindicated? And when would this hope ever be realized? And these are still unanswered questions. He has a hope, but he doesn't know how or when it will come to pass. So that moves us now into chapter 14. And again, I'm just going to highlight certain passages. You can read the full text on your own at your leisure. But what we find now, amazingly, is the beginning of an understanding or a desire for a bodily resurrection where vindication will take place. And this is what, uh, in your outline, your notes, I mention as progressive revelation. This is the first time that the idea of a bodily resurrection begins to take place in Scripture. Now, I think Job uh, lived during the era of the patriarchs. I think that's where the book was uh, largely written back then. So we're, we're talking about 19th, 20th century B.C. So that would make Job the very first book written of the Bible. Moses doesn't come around till four or five hundred years later and writes the Pentateuch. So Job may very well be the very first book written of our Bible. And throughout the Scripture, when God presents a truth... He oftentimes presents it in a very elemental, simplified, short form. And that truth begins to grow and expand as God adds more revelation and more truth. And we refer to this process as progressive revelation. So, for example, in Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, but it's embedded in the language that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Okay, a very simple little seed of truth. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, consummated in the New Testament, you have through types and prophecies uh, an expansion of this idea of a coming Messiah. 
So it starts out small like an acorn. And through the years, through the decades, through the centuries, that acorn sprouts and grows until finally it becomes a mighty oak tree in the New Testament where Christ in all of His fullness and all of His glory is revealed. So that's progressive uh, revelation. So what we're going to see in the book of Job, I believe, as many commentators would agree, not all, that we have here the very first beginnings of a hope of a bodily resurrection, the very first glimmer of light of this hope of a resurrection after we die. Now, many of y'all in your rooms and your homes may have your lights hooked on to a dimmer switch. And you can turn the push the button or whatever, however it's operating, but you can start it on very, very low where the light is just barely emitting from the light bulb. And then you can turn the dial and the light gets brighter and brighter until it's in full, in full force. And that's again the theme of progressive revelation. So here we have the first dim glowings, if you will, of the truth of the resurrection. And that's the theme I want us to try to track through these next five or so chapters briefly. So let's start in uh, chapter 14. And notice in the beginning, verse 1, that Job again is just talking about how short life is and how his days are numbered by God. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. And then drop down to verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. So again, he's starting out just talking about the reality of death how short life is, that his days are numbered by God, verse 5. This is one of the great verses that speaks of the day of your birth, the day of your death is predestined by God, is predetermined by God. Our days are numbered. It's with the Lord. He set our limits. You won't live a second past the day that God has ordained for you to die. All that's within God's hands. And he understands that. But he is suffering bodily. He's suffering mentally. He, he knows he, he doesn't have long to live just from the nature of the disease that he has. And so it's a very gloomy outlook. But then drop down to verse 7. The Holy Spirit now begins the process of bringing a, a precious truth into the mind of Job, which has yet been unrevealed no prophet has ever talked about it. No other revelation from God has ever indicated it. But there begins to well up within his heart this, this passing thought almost, a longing desire that begins to take root that maybe after he dies, there'll be resurrection and vindication then. And this is what he begins to explore in chapter 14. Look at verse 7. He begins to say in verse 7, For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail, though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil. And at the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. And so here Job begins to ponder a tree, a tree that dies, at least from all observation, and yet at the scent of water, it seems to come to life again. And so as he's observing nature, how God has embedded within nature this idea of death and resurrection, he begins to ponder that. And he begins to wonder that there's hope for a tree after it dies at verse 7, it will sprout again. And so this idea begins to take root within his heart and his mind. 
But notice in verse 10, by contrast, but man dies and lies prostrate, man expires, and where is he? Because according to the prevalent theology of the day, you die and your body goes to shale, and basically that's it. But this notion of a tree, and this is the inner working of the Spirit of God that begins to take hope for a tree to make him wonder, well, maybe there's hope for man too. Maybe there's hope for me. If there's hope for a tree that dies and the water revives it and it sprouts forth new life, maybe that could happen to me too. And so he begins to speculate on this. So he moves further down in verse 13 and verse 14. And he says, oh, that you would hide me in shale. This is, so he's imagining now he's going to die and he would go to shale. And oh, that you would hide me in shale, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. And you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again like, like the tree? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Now, in this language, there are several things. Notice he begins in verse 13 by saying, Oh, that you would hide me in shale, that you would conceal me in the grave after I die until your wrath returns to you, until all of your anger with me, God, is spent. And then you would set a limit for me and remember me. Remember me with goodness. Remember me in mercy is the idea. So, oh God, maybe maybe after I die, you would hide me in Sheol, spend forth all your wrath, and then you would look upon me and remember me. And, and he's starting to liken himself with the hope of maybe like a tree he could be raised again. So in verse 14, he says, if a man dies, will he live again? See, that, that hope now is beginning to, to find deeper root in his own heart. And he says, all the days of my struggle, that is a struggle that he has in this life on this earth, I will wait until my change comes. Now, you can interpret this in different ways, but it seems to many that what Job is beginning to say here is that all the days of my struggle, I'm going to wait. That's a word we, he had back in chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will wait in him. I will hope in him. That's that word. All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. What change? What change is he talking about? What's interesting in the Hebrew text, this word for change here in verse 14 is the very same word for sprout in verse 7. It's the very word that, that Job is envisioning of a tree that dies and then with water it sprouts anew. And that's the exact same Hebrew word that Job uses now in verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my sprouting comes. So it's easy to see that he's beginning to envision a hope that once he dies and goes to Sheol and God's wrath is spent and then God remembers him again that he will sprout forth in a new life, a resurrection life. And he's waiting until that change comes, that sprouting forth like the tree that dies, sprouts forth. He's beginning to entertain the wild notion that maybe that could happen to him as well. There's been no revelation on the resurrection of the body. And this is starting out somewhat as just a, a longing desire of his heart, a passing thought but the Spirit of God, I believe, is there implanting this thought in his mind, and it starts to take root within his soul. Now, this is totally contrary to the traditional view of what happened to people when they die. 
So if you, if you review, for example, just the traditional understanding of what happened when someone died was their, their bodies went to Sheol. Sheol is the grave. It's, a, it's the realm of the dead. And in the Old Testament, there's a very physical emphasis. This is where your, this is where your body goes. And notice some of the things the Old Testament taught about the concept of Sheol. Everyone who dies goes to Sheol. No one comes up again from Sheol. So they definitely did not hold to a view of a bodily resurrection. In Sheol, there's quietness, there's sleep, there's rest. But Sheol is a land of darkness, deep shadow, utter gloom. It's a place of silence. There's no praise of the Lord in Sheol. There's no activity. There's no planning. There's no knowledge. There's no wisdom. The dead know nothing there. There's no reward. There's no memory. There's no knowledge of what takes place on earth. In other words, your body just goes there and it decays And whatever concept of the soul is there is just kind of nothing. It's no man's land. That was their traditional understanding of Sheol. But amazingly, contrary to all of that, the Spirit of God is sowing within Job's heart and mind this longing that like a tree, maybe he too can have the hope of a resurrection, a sprouting forth in new life after he's de- he's, he has died. Now, this is a fleeting thought for Job. It doesn't last long. It's a hope that comes and seems to be quickly extinguished because later on in chapter 14, Job's mind now drifts back into the traditional theology And he says in verse 18 and 19, but the falling mountain crumbles away. He's looking at other evidence of nature and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you destroy man's hope. So so what's interesting in chapter 14, this brand new thought implanted by the Holy Spirit, I believe, of a bodily resurrection, of a sprouting that will, will bring in new life out of the grave, begins to emerge into his thinking. But it doesn't last long. It's quickly pressed down and smothered by just the heavy indoctrination of the traditional theology that all justice and all rewards come in this life there is no life to come there's no justice after you die it's all in this life so that's why his friends kept saying job you have sinned in this life you're suffering in this life your only hope is to repent but then this new light comes in the possibility the hope that may be like a tree I too will sprout new, and then I will have at least my vindication. Then I'll have my justice. And so that thought emerges, but then it seems to quickly die down. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of round one, where all three friends speak to Job, and he he responds to all three of them. So now we start round two. All three of the friends are going to speak. Job will respond to each of them in turn. So at this point in chapter 15, we have the speech of Eliphaz, and I'll just quickly summarize this. The first thing that he does, and the second round is, is kind of like round one, but a little more intense. A lot of the same things are being emphasized, but it gets a little more brutal. So now Eliphaz, who's the first to speak, he starts round two, and he says in verse Two, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? In other words, you know, here's a man in agony in his presence, and all he's going to do is condemn him for having windy words. So again, he rebukes Job, having no wisdom being full of folly. And then he emphasizes, and this is again very cruel, 
He emphasizes the woes of the wicked, implying, Job, you are wicked. Look at your suffering. And there's a lot more for you to suffer unless you repent. So look down at verse 20 through 25. He says, a wicked man writhes in pain all his days. See, and that's kind of what Job is doing right now. But notice how Eliphaz is, he's describing the wicked man, but he's pointing his finger at Job. The wicked man rides in pain all his days, and numbered are the years stored up for the, for the ruthless. Sounds of terror are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness. And he is destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack, because he has stretched out his hand against God and conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. And all of this is Eliphaz just describing the woes of the wicked, but again, the application he's making is to Job. And then in verse chapters 16 and 17, Job gives a response to Eliphaz. And I want to just summarize this because he again tenaciously holds to his own innocence. And he secondly will emphasize that God is entitled to deal with him in any way he wishes. But, but why is God acting like my enemy? I have not Sin against God in the way I'm being accused. I'm not totally sinless, but I'm not guilty of great sins to bring this great suffering. Why is God acting as my enemy? So he is agonizing more in chapters 16 and 17. If you look at chapters 16 and drop down to verse 18 and 19 of chapter 16, Job says, in the midst of all of this, O earth, do not cover my blood, and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. Now notice again in verse 19, Job's, again, in the smothering of all of the gloom and all of the words of his friends, this hope keeps emerging up out of the soil. So in verse 19, he says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high, which would be a reference to God. Even though he knows God is judging him, God is punishing him, he still believes that God is his advocate. So there's two conflicting ideas about His God going on in his mind. He's trying to make sense out of all of his circumstances. So even in 19, there's another glimmer of hope there. And then if you look on to chapter 17 and look at verse 13, as Job continues to lament his circumstances and expresses his commitment to hold to the way of righteousness, And yet, even when he dies, there's not going to be any hope in Sheol. Look at chapter 17, verse 13. If I look for Sheol as my home, I make my bed in the darkness. If I call to the pit, you are my father. To the worm, my mother and my sister. The worm would be in death where the worm never dies. To the worm, my mother and my sister. Where now is my hope? And who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to shale? Shall we together go down into the dust? And and what he's expressing here, I believe, is that, okay, if I die, and if that's all is for me to go down to shale, there is no hope there. According to the traditional view of man, if I die and go to shale, where is my hope? So again, he's wrestling with this new idea of resurrection against the backdrop of what is understood to be the traditional acceptable view that once you're in Sheol, it's a no man's land. And so you find him sinking down into that discouragement again. 
And then we have Bildad in, ver- in chapter 18. Again, I'm just kind of skipping through. I want to get to 19, chapter 19. So in chapter 18, Bildad speaks, and again, he complains against Job's accusations against them, his friends, in verses 2 through 4. And then through the rest of the chapter, again, just picks up the theme of, oh, the wicked, you have a lot of terrors still waiting for you, Job. So again, it's that emphasis that, Job, you're wicked, and unless you repent, there's no hope for you at all. So in this last section of chapter 18, verses 5 through 21, This is a long verbal attack against Job where Bildad is laying out more insults to Job, describing the fate of the wicked as being total darkness, being caught in various snares and traps, that the wicked, like you, Job, are going to be frightened by terrors at every step. You'll be surrounded by calamities. Your skin will be devoured by disease torn from the security of your tent. There'll be no memory of you, Job, no offspring. All are appalled at the fate of those who do not know God. That's what he's saying to Job, and basically he's, again, applying it all to Job. So that's Bildad, chapter 18. And now we come to chapter 19. So Job now is responding to Bildad. He begins by lamenting the torments of his friends. Friends need to be compassionate. They need to be understanding. They need to be sympathetic. They need to be good listeners. His friends are none of that. So he laments that his friends have only added more to his torments. In verses 6 through 8, he complains that God is at enmity with him. Look at verse 6, chapter 19. I know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has put darkness on my paths. And so basically what Job is working through and recounting is that, look, there's no, I have no hope in this life. I have no hope in death. If that's all there is, then I am totally without hope and I'm doomed. And yet, that hope of resurrection that emerged so briefly in chapter 14 is now going to emerge again. And this is, again, as a testimony to the Spirit of God sustaining this man's faith in the midst of all these dire circumstances. It's a glorious thing. So if you look at chapter 19 and just start in verse 23 through 29, let's focus primarily on, uh, on, let me start reading in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And now and now again, starting in verse 25, these incredible words come out of his heart. He says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take a stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. So as I understand this, these particular verses, This notion of vindication is connected with the idea of resurrection again in his heart and mind. Let's walk through these verses. Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, I don't know how strong this knowledge is of Job. 
It could be his hope, his, his desire for this to happen has become so strong that it's, the Spirit of God embeds it as something that now he has confidence in. I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, who is the Redeemer? Well, in the Hebrew, this is the word for goel. This is a word that's later in the Scripture is translated as kinsman redeemer. It's a kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. This is that word goel, okay? A goel, a kinsman redeemer, is someone who had the duty of avenging the bloodshed of a relative who is put to death. It was the goel, the kinsman redeemer, that would go out and vindicate his life. The goel or the kinsman redeemer would would vindicate a relative who lost their property. He could go and redeem that property for his relative. Or if they were sold into slavery, he would go and buy them out of slavery. That's the goel. That's the the role of the kinsman redeemer. It's also one of the incredible titles for God himself throughout the Old Testament. God was Israel's goel, their kinsman's redeemer, who redeemed them not only out of Egypt, but the bondage and slavery of Egypt, but later from the Babylonian captivity. So what most think is that the redeemer here that Job is referring to is none other than God himself. And he says, I know that my redeemer lives. He's alive. He's not dead. I may die, but my God who will be my Redeemer, is alive. And that gives him hope of vindication because now he's thinking of God as his Redeemer, his kinsman Redeemer, someone who will come in and rescue him out of his bondage and slavery and sickness, someone who will redeem him and and deliver him into a place of freedom. And so he now begins to envision that God will redeem him. But when will that take place? Well, let's read on. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. At the last, that language can refer to the last day, the eschatological focus, way off into the future, at least a day in the future. But Job envisions that at the last, maybe it's the last day or at the end, he will take his stand on the earth. So the Redeemer will come on the last day or in the last period, and he will stand on the earth. Or literally the word earth is dust which is oftentimes used of the grave. So what I think Job is envisioning in verse 25, the Spirit of God is welling up within him that there is hope that his Redeemer God lives, and on the last day he will come to earth and he will stand upon his grave, his dust. The word dust is oftentimes connected with the grave. It's also connected with the remains of the physical body. From dust we were made, to dust we shall go. And the Redeemer will come and stand on his grave over his dust. And then in verse 26, he says, And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Now this many understand to be the very initial glimmers of the hope of a bodily resurrection. Now, some commentators think that this is a hope that will occur before he dies. But look at verse 26. He says, even after my skin is destroyed. And that word destroyed in the Hebrew means it struck off. In other words, that doesn't speak to the effects of his disease that his skin is going to be struck off, but of death, it seems to me and, and other commentators. Now, the King James add worms, and it adds body in there that's not in the Hebrew, but it's trying to, to add in these words to make a bodily resurrection clearer. 
But what Job is saying is that even after my skin is destroyed, that is, after I die, yet from my flesh, from that dead body, I will see God. And that implies that the body will come alive again. It will be resurrected. So that even though after my skin is destroyed, after it is struck off of me and I'm dead, yet from my flesh there will come a time when I with my eyes will see God again. And so this may very well be an incredible reference to the beginnings of the hope of a bodily resurrection. Notice he mentions in verse 26 and 27 three times that he will see God with his eyes. The end of verse 26, look at verse 27, whom I myself shall behold and with my eyes will see and not another. So he is envisioning with his, with his physical eyes seeing God again after he dies. So you fit all that together and it suggests a possibility of this bodily resurrection yet to come. It's kind of a a premature notion of a new glorified resurrected body. Not the old physical body. It's dead. It's it's in the grave. The skin has been been, uh, taken away. And yet from that flesh, he will see God. A very faint sketch, if you will, of what is later revealed in Scripture as the resurrection of the body. And if that's true, then look at the end of verse 27, my heart faints within me. I mean, the notion that I may be like a tree that has hope that after it dies and the water comes, it it, it sprouts anew, that that would happen to me, that I will die, and yet my Redeemer will come and He will raise me, and with my eyes I will behold my, my Redeemer. Oh, my, my heart is fainting. The, the hope that that gives to him would be incredible. So he says, my heart faints within me that such a hope could really be, be real. So, again, it seems, and not all commentators would take this view, but certainly a, a, a good number of them would, that this is the very first reference to the notion of a bodily resurrection. Now, let me kind of just draw from this several uh, conclusions. The first is that this gives us another insight into the purpose of Job's sufferings. Because Job went through this. We know that the, the demons and Satan are involved and it's to, it's to show the, the reality of Job's faith to the demons. That's certainly a major part of all of this. But if this interpretation of the first glint of light, the very dawn of the bodily resurrection that we now stand in the full light of because we have the rest of Scripture, we we can learn that maybe another purpose in Job's suffering is to awaken him to the notion of a hope stronger than what traditional theology had given him. The traditional theology said you get your rewards and punishments in this life. When you die, you go to shale. That's it, basically. And yet, through the suffering of Job, he realizes, he comes to the conclusion, he has no hope in this life. If he goes to shale, he has no hope. But he can have hope if he, like a tree, will one day sprout anew. And God will come as his Redeemer and vindicate him, and he will gaze into the very face of God. Now that is hope. And it's out of the suffering, the agony of his afflictions, that this hope of the resurrection emerges. So Job Job has been standing on the edge of the abyss of death, And yet he has stood there without any answers, without any hope. He's been unjustly accused of great sins by his friends. He stands in confusion, not understanding the ways of God. He longs for death, but he knows that there's no vindication in this life or in Sheol. And so the Spirit of God begins to, out of this this 
box that he's in, this hopeless despair condition, this trap that he's caught in, now gives him this greater hope of a bodily resurrection. And I think the Holy Spirit planted within his heart this seed. It's a tiny little seed at this point. But the tears that are rolling down his cheeks from his sorrow and his pain and his agony water that little seed in the soil of his heart and it begins to sprout roots downward and begins to grow upward. A tree of hope, if you will. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my sprouting comes. That was the first emergence of this hope it was temporary it was chapter 14 it was quickly beaten down but now it grows again in chapter 19 it's a novel idea no one else has thought of this before it's innovative it's heretofore unknown in the theology of the day it almost appears to be ridiculous but it's a thought that the holy spirit lingers within his heart which is the beginnings of this incredible progressive revelation of the acorn growing into the tree of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. And with this prospect of dismal death, Job envisions reality of a future resurrection of the body where his Redeemer will vindicate him and his hope takes root and springs forward and it encourages him. This is still very short-lived as we go through the rest of the book. But one of the reasons I think the suffering for Job was ordained by God was to provide the gloom and the hopelessness out of which this hope of the resurrection would spring. I think there's an application for us as well. Because what, what Job was wrestling with is a, was a baseline conviction that God is good. God is good. All my circumstances seem to say that God is not doing good to me. God has wronged me. My friends have wronged me. And you can imagine someone who would sink in utter despair and just give up. But this is evidence of a regenerate heart that there is a bottom line based sense that even though all the circumstances are horrible and terrible, that God is a good God. And Job does not let go of that. That in spite of what my circumstances are telling me, in spite of all the agony that I'm in, all the mistreatment of my friends, God is a good God and because he will not let go of that it brings forth this hope for a time when God's goodness will be manifested and the spirit of God uses that to bring forth the hope of the resurrection and vindication from his redeemer and I would say that God brings trials and sufferings into our life as well to test us what is the character of the God that we worship? Is he a, a vengeance, a God of vengeance? Is he a God of anger, a God of judgment? Is he a, a, a vindictive God that hates me and is just out to ruin my life and make me suffer? Or is God ultimately a good God? And though I don't understand my trials or my tragedies, I cling and believe and I know that God is good. And from that truth comes hope. Hope in the future. Hope that circumstances will change. And even if I go to the grave, there is hope in the resurrection of the body, standing before the Lord, showered with His love and goodness forever and ever as a believer. So that like Job, sometimes trials are ordained for us to challenge us. Do we really believe that God is good? Not looking at your circumstances, not looking at the people who have wronged you, but do you believe that God is a good God? 
And scriptures have to continually remind us of this because we continually are challenged in it. That's why we read in Psalm 34, as we read earlier, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God's people need to remember that. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Even Jesus had to remind His disciples, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So during your trials, during your sufferings, during your difficulties in life, don't ever let go of the goodness of God. Job found no vindication, no hope in life, no hope in death or shale. He was innocent of any great horrible sins to bring such suffering upon him. He was a godly man, a righteous man. But in spite of all the circumstances, he believed God is good. And out of that conviction, though in the chaos of his life, the Holy Spirit plants into his mind this new idea of being vindicated after death that like a tree, he will sprout anew and begin to see the face of God. And again, this is just the very beginnings of this incredible truth that is expanded and grown throughout the rest of Scripture. But it's a truth that should remind us and encourage us as well that God is good. God is always good. And God will bring good out of whatever bad things are in your life because that's the very character of the God that we love and the God that we worship and the God who has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture. And that's what Job clung to so that out of all the demise, all of the suffering again, emerges this incredible hope for the very first time of the idea of being vindicated by God when he is bodily raised from the dead. This hope of the resurrection is a glorious thing for us as believers today. We, we have the rest of Scripture to inform us. We know that our resurrection is tied to Jesus Christ. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstfruits when He was raised from the dead on the third day, when He comes again, we will be the harvest. We will participate. We will share in His resurrection. Jesus said to His disciples in John 14, because I live, you will live also. And Paul says in Romans 8 that He raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you so that our victory over death is secure for us because Christ had His victory over death when He died for our sins on the cross. So we have that hope of resurrection. Job had it as the faint glimmers of the dawn, the light just beginning to appear over the horizon. We now have that truth and and the sun directly overhead shining in all of its brightness because we have Scripture. And what an encouragement that should give to us. And what a confident hope we should have because of the truth of the resurrection of the body. It's a confident hope that Paul speaks of frequently. He says in Philippians 3 that it's a hope that we should have even though we live in an ungodly world. In chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 18, he talks about that we live among those who are enemies of the cross of Christ whose enemy is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. But he said, but, but even though you live in a very ungodly world, let your mind dwell on this. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we wait for a Savior. When Christ comes, verse 21, He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory so that we will share in the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ. 
so that the resurrection of the body is something that can give us hope and encouragement that we live in a very ungodly world. It's also a, a great encouragement for all the injustice that's around us. As Job felt that he was being treated unjustly and looked forward to the bodily resurrection as when he would be vindicated, so too with God's people. In Revelation 6, we have those who have already died. Their souls are now under the altar in heaven. And they cried, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer. And here they are under the, soul, under the, the altar in heaven, crying out for vengeance, for righteousness, for justice. And what the angel says to them is, Rest a little while longer. And they will rest until the Lamb of God comes back when He will resurrect all people and the resurrected saints will join with Him in judging the world. And that day, all injustice will be rightly punished and God's people will be vindicated as we heard last time from Revelation 20 and that God will bring about a complete reconciliation and glorification of all of His saints. So that the bodily resurrection not only encourages us because we live in an ungodly world, but when you look around you see all the injustice done, the day of bodily resurrection will rectify all the wrongs that are currently going on. And like Job, the bodily resurrection will give us great hope in our own sufferings. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So now we go through this life, we have afflictions, we have persecutions, not so much in America. But all of that is producing an eternal weight of glory. And that eternal weight of glory will be concentrated in our resurrection body when our soul is joined back to our body and we are with the Lord forever. And finally, it's a, the bodily resurrection that Scripture gives to us as an incredible hope is a great motivation for us to serve the Lord now. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 15, you're very familiar with that chapter where Paul goes in great detail to defend the idea of not only Christ's resurrection bodily, but our future bodily resurrection. And he talks about that as being a, a, an incredible event where there's no more crying, no more pain, that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. And he gives an incredible description of, of just the resurrection of the saints and given a new body, a glorified body. And how does he conclude that, that meditation on the resurrection? Well, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because you have the hope of a bodily resurrection, spend and be spent for Jesus Christ. Because all that man can do is kill your body. They cannot kill your soul. And they cannot kill your body twice. They can only kill it once. And then the Lord's going to resurrect it. And it will live forever. And let that so embolden your faith to live for Jesus Christ now. Because in that day, there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying. All pain will end. All sorrow is vanquished. There will be no more curse, no more death. All sadness is swallowed up with inexpressible joy. No more sinful thoughts. No more evil desires. No more hateful words or wicked actions. No more wretchedness, but our hearts will be purged from all of its depravity. 
No more wheelchairs, no more canes, no more ventilators, no more medicines, doctors, hospitals, no pharmacies in heaven, no nursing homes, no cemeteries. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the dead will live. And that is our future. That is our glory because of what Jesus Christ has done for His people. So why do some people go out and sacrifice their lives for Christ and for the gospel if it wasn't for the hope of the bodily resurrection? Why are some people willing to go into to foreign lands, hostile lands, and risk the, being captured and tortured and put to death for the gospel of Jesus Christ if it wasn't for the hope of the bodily resurrection? Why in the first century were some of our brethren fed to the wild beasts in the Colosseums? Or during the days of the Reformation, why would people be willing to let their bodies be burned alive for Jesus Christ if it wasn't for the hope of the bodily resurrection? It is that hope. And it's a hope that we have as well. So that what we have in Job is just the beginnings of this glorious truth, this little acorn that sprouts for the very first time and through the rest of Scripture grows into this glorious, beautiful tree rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a resurrection that we too will share in. And all of this is because God is good. God is good to His people. He's always good to His people. And regardless of your pain or regardless of your shame, our death will be great gain because it will bring us into the very presence of our Lord, awaiting the day of our resurrection when our body will be rejoined with our soul to be forever with the Lord. That is our hope. That is our glory. And in Job, we see the very beginnings. Thank God we have a little more truth, a little more revelation to hang our faith on, to draw encouragement from, because our God is a good God. And may that encourage all of us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you, Lord, for just the beginning of the revelation that you implanted in Job's heart just a, a fleeting desire, a longing hope that somehow, like a tree, that man too can one day sprout anew though he dies. And Lord, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have this hope made certain and sure for all of God's people. For Jesus came and died and bore all of our sins, suffered all of the curse and the wrath of God, and rose again on the third day to give us hope not only of forgiveness, but one day of being completely redeemed and vindicated and glorified in your presence forever. And, O oh Lord, may that encourage us, particularly those whose circumstances are bad. But, Lord, may you encourage them that underneath God is good. And His goodness is seen through every aspect of our life if we but had eyes to see it. So encourage our hearts with Your goodness and the hope of glory to come in the resurrection when Jesus returns. And we give You praise and glory in His name. Amen. these like stars appearing these before god's throne who stand each a golden crown is wearing who are all this glorious band alleluia hark they sing praising loud their heavenly king
Who are these of dazzling brightness, these in God's own truth arrayed, clad in robes of purest whiteness? Luster ne'er shall fade, ne'er be touched by tongue's rude hand, whence come all this glorious band? These are they who have contended for their Savior's honor long, wrestling on till life was ended, following not the sinful throng. These who will the fight sustain, triumph through the Lamb have gained. These are they whose hearts were riven, sore with woe and anguish tried, who in prayerful oft have striven with the God they glorified. Painful conflict or God has bid them weep no more. These like priests have washed and waited, offering up to Christ their will, soul and body consecrated, day and night to serve Him still. Now in God's most holy place, blessed they stand before His face. And now may our gracious God who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, help us to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when we shall stand with glorified bodies in His presence forever loving, worshiping, serving Him who died and rose again for us. To God be the glory forever. Amen. God bless you.